laid hands on and uh, ordained or commissioned Vince and Kenny as elders, as pastors in the church. And uh, he's been an encouragement, even the little bit we've gotten to interact over the past few years. And uh, a wonderful man of God who is going to continue to be a blessing to to the combined church together uh, is our hope, uh, Lord willing, in the future. In the future. And so we, we've asked him to come this weekend and, and speak into and strengthen the church in various ways, including this morning by, by speaking us, to us from the Word of God. And um, I've, I've described it and, and see it as, as a kind of an equivalent to, or almost equivalent to, uh, we read in the book of Acts that, that Paul and Barnabas would go back through and it says they would strengthen the churches that they had planted. And so uh, Jeff is coming back through San Diego and strengthening us as a church. So would you welcome him this morning to, to come and preach to us? Thank you. It's a, it's a delight to be with you on this beautiful Sunday morning. You said get warmer, get closer and get warmer. And I was like, I don't know how much this is about right. You start turning up the heat and I'm not sure I'm going to be sweating. You know, this is perfect right here. And you have, uh, let me say first, before we walk and walk through this beautiful text and uh, some of the following texts that we'll be looking at, subtext that we're looking at here today. Uh, Zach, it's been a pleasure knowing you through Soma School and then meeting you in, in San Francisco, uh, you and Natasha, just and your beautiful family. You're, yeah, it's been a pleasure knowing you. And this week, getting to know your heart. I think I kind of knew your direction. I knew... Um, you know what you know what you were you were about, but this week I really felt like I, I saw into your heart, and it just it it really really resonated with me. I could hear in your voice the voice of Christ in His character. I could see that bleeding through you, and uh, so thank you so much for the invitation to say some words here today to the beautiful Church of Kaleo. Um, it's great to be with you. And Tom, uh, I had a op- wonderful opportunity to get to meet Tom for the first time. This guy is like, I mean, he is, he's solid. He's just uh, um, such a, a tender heart towards God. It was really, really weird. I, I was uh, telling my dad and uh, my stepmom, where I'm staying at their house, um, and they're here this morning, so glad to have them here. I was telling them that I have never seen a bunch of criers weepers as much as I have this week in terms of just brokenness before God. And uh, just just hearing um, Zach as he was talking about Christ and what Christ is doing in his life and him just kind of crying and then um, Tom, you know, talking about Jesus and crying. I was like, is this crying ever going to end? I mean, it's just so beautiful. You know, we can be really tough men and then cry and um, that brokenness comes through. And then I was with uh, uh, Vince. It was really weird because Vince started off on Friday morning. We were meeting for coffee, uh, meeting, eating some breakfast at the mission. And I looked over at him and he's got tears going down his face and it's kind of dripping into, what did you have to eat? It was salty French toast. <laughs> and, uh, and then meeting with, with Kenny on uh, Friday night and just this brokenness before God that we, we are incomplete. We need him. And he is our life. And he is everything. And hearing that just resonated so much with my heart. And I'm so, so encouraged and inspired by the heart of what's happening in, uh, in the el- with the elders um, and those uh, involved in helping lead and guide 
um, just getting to meet so many of you, um, meeting Shannon and, and uh, uh, of course, Vince and Nancy I've known for, for a long time. Um, and then I had a, a great chance to, to get to meet uh, Brooke and uh, the one, the, the, the um, oh my goodness, I know my brain's now, don't, don't say, I've been trying to remember all, all the names. Shane. Did you say? Shane and, and Brooke, they picked me up yesterday and we spent some time together in the car. You, you know, you can, when we look, look at Ephesians 4 and we see that God gifts his church, right, with people that are called to shepherd and lead it. And he gave, in his, in his procession, you know, when he led captive, he gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And uh, he, he didn't give the church money, land, property, things like that. He gave the church people, relationships. And that's truly the deepest value that we have is one another, the relationships that we have. And so, um, anyway, it's an honor to be here with you today, and, and I honor the elders and pastors of this church in Kaleo. Um, thank you for at least enduring me for the next few minutes. If you get up and walk out, then I will just thank my Heavenly Father. <laughs> for giving me the chance to be here with you today. So I want to walk through the Gospel of John. I understand that next, in the next couple of weeks, you're going to be working through 1 John, beginning working with 1 John. As, okay. And uh, so I'd like to maybe set a little bit of that up today just by talking about the Beloved. And I think the sermon series that you're going to be walking through is Beloved, something light. Beloved, something light. Um I was looking to see if it pops up on the screen here. I think you're going to be walking through that in the next week. So I'd like to set that up here today by talking about the beloved um, and, and who, who, the, who the beloved is, how we can participate in the life of the beloved and how, how we find ourselves participating in that. And I asked Zach if he would read for us today from the, the, the prologue of the fourth gospel. And the, the verse that I would like to double click on and just look at for a moment, and then we're going to, I'm going to whisk you away to the second half of the fourth gospel. Um, but the, I'd like to double click here and just look into uh, verse number 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, or the only begotten, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And other translations have, have it, who is in the bosom of the Father. There's this picture of being in the bosom of the Father, that no one has ever seen or beheld or encountered, really, truly encountered God uh, with their senses, encountered God. But the only begotten Son has made the eternal known to us. What is this evangelist in the fourth gospel? What is he conveying or speaking to us? He's saying that all of us have this desire to encounter God. We all long to know the living God, our maker, our creator, to have some kind of relational equity, some, some kind of relational connection and, and that sense of home, that sense of belonging, to be restored, to be reconciled to the one who has made us all. And we're born with this namelessness. 
we're born with this sense of we don't know really who we are. We're estranged. We're out of sync. We're, we're disjointed in our relationship with our creator. And so we're searching, we're looking, we're, you know, turning over stones and turning new leaves and uh, rummaging through everything in our world, trying to find and discover this, um, I think the, the, the German word that really gets that is saying zucht, this, this sense of true home belonging, that place where you're like, ah, I can rest, where you can kick your feet up and lean back and just go, I am finally home. I've been searching. Our souls are looking for that, but we don't know where it is. And all of a sudden, this one steps on the scene, the one that we're told of in the first, in the prologue, at the very beginning, that, that the Word was made flesh. He steps on the scene, or as, the, as Eugene Peterson says, that, that he, moves, he moves into the neighborhood. You know, he steps right into our world, and he starts putting on display. He's, this, is, this is the humanity of God, or, or um, maybe another way of saying this is God. Um, showing us what it's like to be human. Because we don't know. We don't know what it's like to be human. Jesus did not come to make Christians, right? Jesus did not come to make another religion. Jesus came to show us what it is like to be human again. We've lost that sense of humanness, that sense of humanity. And so Jesus shows up on the scene as God saying, hey, this is what it looks like to be human. This is what it looks like to live the life that I've called you to, the identity that I've given you. This is God in flesh. This is the Son of God being sent to us. Now, this picture of him being in the bosom of the Father, that he has the perfect relationship with the Father, that he is obedient to the Father, that he seeks the Father's glory, that he that everything in his life is connected intimately connected with the father this picture we have right here of him being in the bosom of the father that he trusts that he leans that he's got his whole life lives that out and that we're told here really Jesus is giving us witness he is witnessing to the father um grace and truth come through Jesus Christ um all of this is given to us through the Father. Now, the gospel of the fourth gospel is divided into two books. Um, the first book is considered to be the book of signs, and that takes it begins in really the beginning of chapter two, the first sign, the first miracle in chapter two, and it works its way all the way through to chapter twelve at the very end, where there's this final sign, the booming voice of God that happens, and all of these signs give witness to the the the, the validity of who Jesus Christ is, and we get to the second book, which is called the book of glory. It's the the unveiling of God's glory through Jesus Christ. And I would like to move to the 13th chapter. And we're going to walk through just a couple of verses here as we, as we uncover um, what it means to be beloved, what it means to live in this loving um, balance in relationship with God. I suppose many of us have struggled at times with, with resting. Anybody? You know, when, when, when the room is filled with unrest, um, maybe, it was a, maybe it's a hostile takeover in a company. Maybe it's betrayal by a friend, a close friend. Maybe it's being accused of something that we didn't 
do wrong, or maybe we did something wrong and we were rightly accused. And in those moments, we can't, we find it difficult to rest. Maybe it's unresolved tensions with a spouse that linger on and it's not getting resolved. We're having a difficulty in communicating and connecting. And so there's this unrest in our heart. There's this unrest, this unsaid tension that lingers in our life and it wears us out, right? We are exhausted with it. Um, And maybe it's just you. Have you ever had it in your life that everything seems to be going right? I, I, yeah, it's like I should have, I should be at rest right now. I, a, I have a friend who, uh, who is a part of our, 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 our church community. He called me up one day and said, I really need to meet with you. I'm, I'm really puzzled. He said, uh, my company that I was uh, a part of, I was at the entry level, at the very beginning of its formation of a startup, it just got sold to Microsoft. We've made million, I'm walking with millions of dollars. I just bought the most beautiful house in Marin, a beautiful house in Marin County. I love it. I'm married, and we, my wife just had a had a had a child. My life is perfect, and I am restless. <laughs> you know, he said. I thought that once I got all these things, I was supposed to be like, yes, finally, I can I can kick back. And he said, why am I so? He said, I've even been getting up every morning at five or six and praying and reading through the Bible. And I'm like trying to do everything. He said, but I just feel so, so miserable. So he said, I've I've come today. He said, I've got my notepad here. And I said, I'd like you to give me some steps on what I can do to have rest. I was like, well, there's about 50 or 60 of them. Get a big notepad. We're going to be working really hard here so you can get some rest. Are you ready? Yeah, it can even be like everything is going right in our life, and yet we, we, we're, we're restless. There's unrest in our lives. What it means to be loved, to be the beloved, is mean, it means to find that place of rest where we work and where we labor out of restfulness, where we're not exhausted every second of the day, but where we're, where we're filled with the creativity of God's Spirit. We're filled with the life of the Spirit, and we're really engaged. And when we pick up this first Uh, This first story in the second half of the Gospel of John, we're finding someone that is showing us what it means to rest. What it means and what it looks like in chaos, in unrest. When everything is topsy-turvy, it's upside down, everything seems to be going against what would be a normal restful situation. We discover what it looks like to rest. In the 13th chapter... Someone is painting us the picture of the one of the verse that we just read a moment ago of Jesus being in the bosom of the father of Jesus being the one that is at rest. And he is revealing to us all that is God, all that is beautiful and all that is good. And beginning with verse 21, after he had said this, uh, speaking of Jesus uh, was, was sharing with his disciples that someone was going to betray him. Um, After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at loss, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Now, 
I'm just going to tell you right up front here. My favorite character in the Bible is the beloved disciple, apart from Jesus, who is not just a character. He is so much more than a character. Uh, the one that I have seemed to be most fascinated with, and I come back to almost, almost daily and just look at how he is mirroring what it means to be a disciple of Christ is, is this disciple. And there are, there are five, five stories that we have, only five stories of this disciple in the fourth gospel. We don't know who he is. Um, some have suggested that it's John, but we don't really know that. There have been, at least from scholarly perspectives, there's been at least 24, 25 different people, historical people put forth as the possible identity behind this character, this beloved one. Um, so we're not really sure who he is, but what we, we do learn a lot about what it means to follow Jesus by looking at this disciple. And the first exposure that we get is on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, on the eve of his death and his redemption for the world. We have this picture of, of a room that is, had his, it has just been stated that someone in this room is a traitor. Someone in this room is going to undermine everything that we've been working for three years for. Someone, from what the disciples' perspective would have been, someone in this room is not as loyal as you all thought. And I'm going to be betrayed tonight. And the room goes cold. Now, I, I want you, uh, the way that this is written in, in the Greek tense is it's written almost play-by-play. Play. Imagine play-by-play. Play. They call it a quantitative, uh, a quantum leap um, or historical present, a, a leap. And it's almost like you're going play-by-play play through this scene. You are in this scene. I want you to imagine that with me. You're in the room. Jesus gets up and he says, hey, someone's going to betray me. And all of a sudden, people start, the disciples Scripture says they start looking at each other, wondering who it's going to be. You know, it's Thomas. That guy's nothing but a doubter. He's doubted from day one. You know, it's him. I can guarantee you it's him. On the other side of the table where Thomas is, he's looking over. It's that loudmouth Peter. Do you see what he just did a moment ago when we were washing feet? He's like... You don't need to wash me. I'm fine. And then when Jesus says, if I don't wash, you have no part of me. He's like, I want to take a bath in the wash basin for feet. Wash up my head. My, and they're like, this guy is like, this guy is, well, what's up with him? It's him. Like he's covering up. The way he's talking, he's trying to cover up. Yeah, it's him. Whew, I feel a little bit better because I think it's Peter. Then someone's like, it's Judas. That guy walks around with the money bag all the time. I know it. Yeah. And then someone else is going, I think it's those sons of thunder. You know, they're always wanting to call fire down from heaven. They're, they're hiding something. It's those guys. The fire's going to fall on them. That's what's going to happen. They're the betrayers. Certain of it. You know, they're all whispering amongst themselves. Some are going, well, I know it's not. I'm not sure who it is, but I know it's not me. I would never. I would never forsake him. I gave up fishnets. Hello? I walked away from fishnets. It's not stockings, that's nets that they were. <laughs> I gave up fishnets to follow him. Matthew's like, I walked away from a big table of money. I would never forsake him. Like the money is back there. I left it all. Sons of, uh, sons of thunder are like, we walked away from dad. Zebedee is in Galilee right now because we, are, do you think we're going to betray him after we sacrificed everything that we sacrificed? 
what's happening here. They're, they're, trying to, they're trying to secure themselves by blaming someone or posturing themselves as being stronger than they are. This is what's going on. There's unrest. I'm not really confident in my relationship in Christ. So I've got to look at me as I'm holy. I've done this, 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 and this. I would never betray him. Or if I'm feeling really bad, I've got to point my finger at someone else that's done worse than me. Or my mind, I think, is worse. The room is not restful. The room is not peaceful. In these five, what what scholars refer to as pericopes, in these five narratives, there is one verb always connected with the beloved disciple. Always. One verb as to what he is doing in that moment, in each of these moments. In this moment, it says he was leaning. It's the same verb that was used in the text that Zach read at the beginning, that Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. This disciple is in that spot. Now, what does this tell us? This tells us that this disciple realizes Jesus said someone's going to betray. That means someone's going to betray. And there's a good chance that someone could be me. My only hope and rest is on him. If I can get as close to him and lean on him, rest in him, not rest in blaming someone else, not rest in saying, well, I would never do that because not rest in my own strength and not rest in someone else's weakness, but rest in him. My only hope is to rest in Christ. Now, the question that's posed to us is, how do we rest? Because all of us are going right now, all right, sounds great. I mean, I want to rest in Jesus, so, you know, how do we do that? Because I have been trying and trying and trying to rest in Him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Operative word there is do. What must I do to have the God life? What must I do? We're all striving, working, fighting, trying to find that place of rest. So how does this disciple find that? And this disciple finds that, and it's found really in his, um, where he finds his identity. His historical identity is lost in this literary identity. We don't know who he or she is. We don't know that. We just know that this disciple is loved by Jesus. This disciple can rest in Jesus because he knows Jesus loves him. And that's all you really need to know about him. And that's all he really is lost in knowing about himself. He doesn't say, I am John, and I was loved by Jesus. All he says is, I am a disciple that Jesus loved. Jesus loves me. That's enough. If he loves me, I can rest in him. If he loves me, everything's going to be okay. Now, does this mean that Jesus did not love the other disciples? No. For God so loved the world. 
this disciple just seems to understand and embrace and trust that love. And his leaning is a response to the initiating, the pursuing love of God through Jesus Christ. The answer to not being a traitor is not being more holy than someone else. The answer to not being a traitor when you're going through whatever crisis in your life, the answer or whatever the unrestful situation is in your life, the answer to to arriving at a place of, of rest is not being more holy, being more right than everybody else. The answer is truly trusting in God's love for you. He loves me. Jesus loves me. I'm loved. I can lean. I can rest. I can recline. I can get close to him in this moment. So close as you, if you were to continue reading on the narrative, you know, you see this little exchange that goes on between Peter and this disciple. Who is it? I don't know. (laughs) Would you ask Jesus who it is? Like I'm really, I mean, I'm I'm on pins and needles here. (laughs) Sure. Who is it, Lord? The way the, the way the table would have set up, it had been like this, a table like this, them all leaning in, much bigger, all leaning in. The beloved's right here. <laughs> Twelve peoples around a little... T- really, I'm telling you, I've been to Israel. There's small tables just like this, and they all get around really close. It's really warm. They're leaning in. There's Peter. There's the beloved. There's Jesus, there's Judas. Jesus says, it's the one I'm going to dip the bread with. His his insight, his restfulness, his reliance upon God's love through Jesus for him places him in 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 a posture where he can truly rest. Look, I know many of us struggle with finding rest in our lives, and this disciple teaches us, shows us, that only when we embrace God's love for us, because most of us are like deeply performance-driven, right? If I do this and this and this, then God will love me. Or if I do this and this and this, then I can really, then I can really find rest in my life. And Jesus is going, if you would embrace my love for you, you would be resting. The Gospel of John picks up this theme over and over and over again of abiding in Christ, abiding in Christ, that if we abide in him and his words abide in us, work can flow from that place of just abiding, of just resting. Say this with me. Jesus loves me. Say this one more time. Jesus loves me. (laughs) And then this way. Jesus loves me. Yeah. Yeah, his love is unlike any kind of love we've ever known. He loves us. And when we rest in that, that's that's where true rest comes from. The knowledge that I am loved. I am loved. I am loved by God.
I want you to just for a moment think about an area of your life where you are uneasy, restless, where you are prone to wander. I love that song, Come Thou Fount, where you, are, where you find yourself prone to wander and to leave the God you love or the God that loves you. Where's an area in your life that you're restless? Now I want you to imagine yourself in the middle of that room, of that area of your life where you're restless. I want you to imagine yourself in that room and Jesus looking at you and saying, child, I love you. Maybe it's some bad habits you feel restless with. Maybe it's someone's approval that you feel restless with. I love you, child. Let my love generate the appropriate responses in your life. There is no way that I'm going to be able to get through all of these five stories. I'm going to go to one more. Um, and I really, I really sense the spirit, even as I was praying this morning, that this was this next story was the one that that really my heart was resonating in as it relates to Kaleo and Anchor Gas Lamp. Like this is this is something that, that God wants to speak to you um, through through this text here today. Um, I suppose the the human condition that many of us have. Um, that all of us find ourselves in, we are humans, <laughs> the human condition that all of us find ourselves in, that many of, of us have um, been confronted at times with what is the right thing to do. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? Like, what's the right thing to do here? But when you're confronted with what's the right thing to do and you identify what is the right thing to do, you discover that it is much easier not to do what is wrong, but to just get out of the room so you don't have to do what's right or wrong. Right? That's easy. Like, if I don't have to do what's right or wrong, and I just get out of the room, then I don't have to be put in, a, in an awkward position, or I don't have to... Uh, th- this happened uh, uh, about a year, and a, a year and a half ago. My daughter, who uh, attends a, a public school in, in San Francisco, um, she... Her name's Jerusalem. She goes by Drew. She tends to be one of those... She's the firstborn. She tends to be one of the... She's the kind of person that has a tendency to push people's buttons. Like, if something's not right, she's going to be the person that's going to say, that's not right. And she has done this from time to time, and we have had to step on the scene and try to fix the mayhem and madness that she has created by her sense of doing what's right and doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Um, although she has done plenty of things that are wrong as well, but <laughs> she thought they were right when she was doing them. So, And she doesn't have a problem pushing back on me either. Like, she'll, you know, push back, and it's always... At first, I'm quite offended because she's challenging my authority. And then I look at her through eyes of love and everything changes. So about a year and a half ago, there was a kid. It was a a fourth grader that was getting bullied by eighth graders. And uh, she has been called out by teachers for being a Christian. And and, uh, we had an incident where she was made kind of made fun of in this context and singled out in her whole class as being a Christian. And, and the Christians were crusaders who killed everybody. And that's what you're identified with. And she came home like ready to go on a crusade against her teacher. (laughs) 
I was like, you are going to prove the very point that she was making. <laughs> on this particular incident, a kid's getting bullied on the, in, in, on the uh, playground, and, and she had had it. And so she steps up, and she says to the eighth grader that's picking on as a third or fourth grader, why don't you pick on someone your own size? And it was a couple of boys that were picking on this other little boy. Um, and that was open territory for them now to start picking on her because she had opened herself up to it. And they went off on her. You know, some four-letter words, calling her names, calling her, you know, you think you're better than everybody else, all this stuff. And they just started, you know, to the point where she got emotional. <gasps> And turned around and walked off in a huff, you know, over to, the, to uh, crying over to the girls' restroom. And they were just, you know, continuing, just calling her all kinds of, all kinds of names. And, and then it was, this pack kind of was gearing up around her. And um, she gets back, gets to, and then one of the teachers steps up. Why are you crying? Nothing. Everything's fine. Um, they see the teacher talking with her. Now she's a snitch. And so this starts going around the whole school. Drew, you know, Drew's a snitch. She's a snitch. Um, and... Uh, then there were some threats that were made, and then the cyberbullying started. You know, all of this stuff starts happening to her. She doesn't say anything to us for, you know, for a couple of days, and it starts escalating at school. It continues on. Finally, one of the teachers calls us, says, you need to come in. You need to, you know, we need to talk about what's going on because it had kind of created this situation. A couple of the kids, a couple of the boys get um, suspended from school for several days. And uh, anyway, it becomes this big, this big thing, and... And now that I've been brought into it, she wants to talk to me about it. So late one night, we go out, right th uh, that night after being at the school, we go out, we're sitting at nighttime at, in the Safeway parking lot, and we're talking, and she starts sobbing. I don't want to do what's right. Doing what's right hurts. I don't like it. I, don't, I do not like it. I will not do it again. I'm just not going to do anything anymore. Because you lose your friends, and she starts going down the list of all the things that have happened to her. I don't have any. I don't have any friends. No one's standing up for me. You know, I was trying to do what was right. I was trying to be like Jesus, and that that doesn't. I don't like that anymore. Like she's just, you know. I mean, you know. And I'm like, I understand. You know, it's okay. I don't like being like Jesus either. Sometimes, you know, I'm trying to. <laughs> it's such a hard path, isn't it? You know, I'm just kind of, you know, trying to love her, and I'm I'm feeling where she's coming from, and she's like. Right there on the spot, she's like, that's it. I am not going to do what's right anymore. I'm just not going to get involved. Which, she probably, that was probably a good thing to kind of, you know, not get as involved as she tends to get in, involved. So, because she can like, this might be a better story. Some stories I was like, I'm kind of like, I don't, I'm just, there's no need to, to address that situation. So anyway, she, that's kind of what she comes to. And I said, well, let's pray together. We pray together. We have a beautiful moment of just reflecting on, on, on how Jesus and his, and his goodness, what it ultimately led him to, but how that, at the end of that death, what that ultimately led to for us. We talked about that, and she was kind of connecting a little bit. And left. Now, I'm bringing that up because there are times in our life when we want to do what's right, makes us feel good to do what's right, but then when the situation pops up, we're like, because doing what's right in this situation is going to mean being ostracized, being not, not fitting in maybe, not being accepted. It's going to mean being marginalized. It may mean a lot of, there may be a lot of things that are connected to this. 
to standing for what's for so, uh, for social justice, for standing up for people that are marginalized, for for being there and 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 helping somebody through a crisis when people may look at that person as being part of the problem. But your your heart's open and you're reaching out and you're compassionate and you're loving. When you're a Barnabas and you're helping Paul, you may you may yourself find yourself being marginalized. Okay, so and it's easier as we find in the life of disciples. It is easier when the guards come in the come into the garden and they take Jesus, the easiest thing to do is not necessarily to join in and do what's wrong and kiss Jesus on the cheek and say, this is the one like Judas does. The easiest thing is just to get out of the room, get out of the garden so that I don't have to be confronted. I don't have to make a decision here. If I'm not present to this situation, then I don't have to, I can distance myself from it. Everything's fine. And this is what the disciples do. They flee, they scatter, they run for their lives. They're afraid. But we pick up this story of this disciple in the 19th chapter of the fourth gospel. In verse 25, it says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby. Now, if you look at, if, as you're looking at this, if you look up and you see uh, in verse 25, it says, near the cross of Jesus stood. And then if you look at um, the verb in the verse, that we, uh, the verse that we just read, standing nearby, they, are, they come from the same root word to stand, but, they're, but standing nearby attached to that word is a para, which means alongside of. So to stand alongside of. So there's two different words that are being used here describing the standing. One is to stand as opposed to be seated. The other one is to stand in solidarity. The beloved disciple is standing in solidarity. He is standing with, literally. Here's the cross. The Gospel of John does such a beautiful way of painting these, these pictures where you, the props are all set up so you can see them like we did a moment ago where they're seated at the table. And this particular prop here's the cross here's jesus and standing here facing out alongside right next to the cross is this disciple he is not just merely present at the crucifixion scene he is standing alongside of the cross being crucified with the christ standing there text says when jesus sees his mother and this disciple, before we get to what Jesus says here, because there, I think there's a word, there's, there's, there's a meaning here for Kaleo and Anchor Gas Lamp that I want to unpack for a moment. When Jesus sees the disciple that he loves, stand, how is it that this one is able to stand there? Like all of us want to be the ones to stand. All of us want to be the ones to do what's right or to have the discernment to do what's right in certain situations. We all want that. And then we want, on top of that, the courage to be able to stand when all of our other friends and peers have run off. All of us want that. That's heroic. That's, you know, mm. but there's one out of 12 that's there that day in solidarity. How is it that he can stand there when the one that he has given his life to following is dying and he does not even know about a resurrection? That's chapter 20. It says explicitly he did not even know there was a resurrection planned. 
He didn't get that. How can he stand there knowing this is the end of a dream? This is the end of a journey. I sold whatever it was to follow Jesus. I left all to follow Jesus, and it's over. It's done. There is no Pentecost church being formed. He doesn't see that. There is no resurrected Jesus where he gets to come out and say, "Ah, I told you so. I was there and you weren't. There is none of that. He doesn't know any of that. He's just standing. How is it that he can do what's right when the consequences for doing what's right is absolutely that he will be connected to the reputation of this criminal that's hanging on a cross? How can he stand there? He stands there because he knows he's loved. Look, let's put it like this. When you know somebody loves you, when you know that they love you, you don't care what other people think about your relationship with them. If they love you, you'll stand by them. You'll walk through hell with them if you know that they love you. You don't care what anyone says. He knows Jesus loves me. So his standing is not, look at the character that I've got to stand by you in this time, Jesus. His character is formed, it's made, it's molded from the, if you could say, the funnel of God's love with, with the liquid of God's love. His ability to stand is directly proportionate to his understanding of God's love in his life. God loves me. I can stand here. I'm not just standing. I'm not just present in the room. I am alongside. I'm here. He's given us a message, brothers and sisters, beloved. He's given us a message. Standing is proportional to your awareness, to your trust of God's love for you. He loves you. And it's just a natural response in the life of those. Now watch what Jesus says here. He says to his mother, Jesus says to his mother, woman, here is your son. He doesn't address her as his mother. There's an exchange happening here. Something's going on here. Here is your son. And then he says, In the next verse, and to the disciple, here is your mother. What does that make Jesus to this disciple? A brother. You are my brother. I'm your elder brother on this cross for you. You're my kid, brother. That's your mom. And we all know, historically, Jesus had many brothers. But something happened on that day, historians tell us, this disciple took Mary into his home from that day forward. Something happened there. He was more of a brother than his biological family making his mother more of a mom than her biological sons or family. At the cross, we are given not roles, not tasks, not responsibilities. We are given relationships. If you have a relationship, the tasks, the roles, they all come through that, right? That all happens. He knows he's supposed to take her home from that day, but Jesus doesn't say, hey, Would you take my mom home with you? 
Because then you're going to have to keep going on and on and on and on about all the things, you know. And then, I mean, you'll need to do this and this. Mom likes this kind of stuff, and she likes that, and she wants to be taken care of in this area and that. So you just need, I mean, this would be, we would have a long, long, long word from Christ on the cross. All we get is, and it's enough. We get it. That's your mom. There is at the cross this coming together, this family that happens, that goes beyond a corporate merger. And it goes to the heart of who we are to each other because of Christ. And that was something that I witnessed as I was meeting with the elders this past, this, this weekend. I saw their, I was just getting, looking into their heart. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Family can be messy. We all know that. But when you're family, you're family. You work through it. How can we be family? Because we understand Jesus loves Kenny, and Jesus loves me, Jesus loves Zach, and Jesus loves Tom, and Jesus loves Vince. We, we get that. He loves. Therefore, we're family. And that has a way of healing us soothing us, washing us, and making us right. Something I think we can remind ourselves of each day, He loves me, and let that shape my day. Let that shape my relationships with everyone else. If I'm loved, I'm secure. I'm not fighting for position, trying to make a name for myself. I have a name in Him. I am loved by God. I want to encourage you over the next, maybe maybe the rest of this week, there are three more stories in the life cycle of the beloved. Um, the next one is the empty tomb where he does not get to see the resurrected Christ, but he comes to faith without the resurrected Christ. And he comes to faith without knowing there's a resurrection. He does not have faith in an event. It's very clear. You read the text, but he comes to believe in Jesus. He just trusts Jesus. Man, I don't know if there's a resurrection. I don't know what's going on here. There's just an empty tomb. But he loves me, and I can trust in him. It's not about events. It's not about resurrection events. For him, it was just, I know Jesus' heart. He loves me. I believe in him. I believe in him. And the next time when they're fishing, in John 21, they're out there fishing, and they've gone back, kind of a place of despair, back to what do we do from here? And he's the one in the boat that looks over and says, after they catch the 153 fish, it's the Lord being able to recognize Jesus in your life, recognizing him in fish catching, recognizing him in whatever it is. That, but seeing God at work in your life is something that only happens through the lens of God's love for you. If you believe he loves you, you're going to see Jesus showing up all over in your life. And you're going to be able to testify as a mediator to it's the Lord. When everyone else is wondering, we just caught 153 fish. I'm not sure what that means. It's the Lord. You're going to find your testimony, your witness is emboldened because you're seeing him at work in your life. And then the last story, you see him walking off into the sunset and Jesus says to Peter, follow me. And then he turns around, he sees the beloved disciple following. And Peter goes, what about him? (laughs) He says, what about this man? (laughs) What about this dude? And Jesus says, what's that to you? You follow me like I've told you you're going to follow me, dying a really gruesome death. <laughs> it's kind of comical. He's like, Jesus says, you're going to die this gruesome death. And he's like, well, what about him? 
I mean, if I've got to die like a crazy death, I, and Jesus says, well, if I say that he's going to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? You just follow me. Don't focus on him. That's the point. Don't get caught up in him. Keep your eyes on me. He's going to follow me in a different path. He's going to go a different direction. What? But he's still following me. And you're following me. Keep your eyes on me. I, I encourage you as you step into the first epistle, you allow these words of this disciple to speak to you and challenge you to be that kind of disciple that embraces his or her identity and God's love. Would you stand with me this morning? So I know we're uh, going to find our way to some communion tables here um, in a moment, but I would like to encourage you just to think about um, this question before you receive uh, communion today. Um, as we're kind of, as we're looking at our hearts and as we're taking an evaluation of our hearts, I would like you to reflect on this. What area of my life would radically change or peace or rest or uh, uh, um, belief or trust. It would, it would just come into that area of my life when I embrace Christ's love in that area of my life, when I embrace his love over me. And some of us see God loves us when we do a bunch of good things, but we can't see him loving us when we're failing and falling short. What would happen if you saw him loving you even when you failed. How would that change you in that moment? I'm going to pray. And then um, as I'm praying, just and you're reflecting on that, allow your heart just to um, gravitate towards his love in that area of your life. Father, we thank you for Jesus, your son, who has come to us putting on display the life of God. Thank you. Thank you for him. Thank you for him showing us how much you love us, how much you care for us. Thank you for embracing, embracing our lives with your love. We hear this radical transformation going on inside of our soul, being emboldened to stand in places we should stand and to rest and relax in places where we can rest and relax. Places to trust at the empty spots of our life, the barrenness of our world. We can stand there and trust in you. We can see you at work in the fruitful labors. We can hear your voice wooing us to tag along in your procession. You're calling and we're following. And now you're saying, follow me. And we respond today. We hear your word through Jesus Christ and our lives are being changed in him. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.